I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Today, it's great to have Annika Harris on the podcast. Annika is an author whose work touches on neuroscience, meditation, philosophy of mind, and consciousness. She's author of two books, Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind, and the children's book, I Wonder. Annika is also a volunteer for Inner Kids, teaching mindfulness meditation to children in schools. Annika, so excited to chat with you today on the Psychology Yeah, podcast. I'm excited to chat with you too. Hi, Scott. <laughs> Why don't we wonder about consciousness together today? How about it? Okay. Yes, sounds good. <laughs> it looked like there were a lot of interesting questions that came in um, on your Twitter feed when you were mm-hmm. when you were um, consulting your crowd. <laughs> well, you, you have a lot of fans. You have a lot of fans, and uh, and a lot of people on my uh, you know my followers who are very interested in consciousness and 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 surrounding yeah. issues, which we'll cover today. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to consciousness, there really are a lot of mysteries, right? I mean, we're we're not talking about like uh, cheese, you know, where it's like, okay, <laughs> we kind of get the molecular structure of cheese. Like you can right. get the molecular structure of consciousness and still not understand what the hell consciousness is, no. right? No. Yeah. And actually at this point, you can't get the molecular structure. I mean, you know, hopefully right. at some point right. we'll have sure. better sense That's of right. it, but we don't, yeah, we don't have any of it. We don't we're know. We're not even there yet. Yeah, we're not even no. there yet. No, yeah. 
Well, maybe that'd be a good starting point in the, just talking about a little difference between the soft, uh, the, the hard problem of consciousness versus the soft problem of consciousness. Can you kind of just uh, describe mm. the two? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's usually put more in terms of the, the hard problem versus the, the easy problems, um, which is a, a, a bit of a, a joke. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> <Right>. it's, <laughs> it's a sarcastic um, comment that there are easy problems at all in neuroscience. Um, but so the, the idea is that um, the, the so-called easy problems are understanding which brain processes and which areas of the brain are responsible for um, different types of experiences, different types of behaviors. Um, you know, when I'm looking at a red square, what, you know, what is the correlating state of my brain for that experience? Um, the hard problem is why there is any felt experience associated with any collection of matter in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a lot of people, I should say this up front, use consciousness um, in different ways. And so I should say that, that the way I'm using the word is in the most fundamental sense. So a lot of people use the word consciousness um, to talk about self-awareness, to talk about complex thought, to talk about um, things that that in my mind are much further down um, the line than just the fundamental um, basic sense in which there is a felt experience, in which there happens to be felt experience in the universe. And I've actually been using the word sentience lately. I'm, mm. I'm doing an audio series now on consciousness, and I, I decided to use that definition um, because it actually gets at the heart of what I mean by consciousness and what's so mysterious about consciousness. And um, the Oxford English Dictionary just defines it as susceptibility to sensation. Um, and so it's almost like prior to any content, even just just um, felt experience at all. Um, and then you can you know put in as, mi- as, as mi- much minimal content as you want, you know, just seeing the color blue. Um, you know, feeling pressure on your hand, um, even, you know, creatures that are much less complex than us, uh, say if worms are conscious, which we, you know, at this point there's no consensus, but if, if they were, we could imagine them having very, very minimal experience, but we can imagine a a felt experience versus there being absolutely no experience at all versus, you know, what we imagine a robot would be or a rock, right? If, If a worm has any consciousness, um, there's a felt experience there of something, of pressure, of um, a physical sensation of moving through the dirt, um, maybe some sense of moving toward food um, or, you know, a, a desire in some very minimal form. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm using the word consciousness um, to, to point to that very fundamental sense simply of felt experience. Yeah, and, uh, and Nagel uh, described it so beautifully in his book. You know yeah. what it's like to be a yeah. bat. Yeah, um, it 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 really. I, I was starting to write an essay with my philosopher friend, and then we didn't. Mm. We, it was too. It turned out to be too tricky. Which is what is it like to be human? Uh, mm. we, we were trying to think what That's is human. Con- what is human <laughs> consciousness? Well, in terms of yeah. uh, a play off that understanding, and we and we, we sat down and we tried to like figure it out, <laughs> and we realized it's just it's too complicated. Question: We start talking about humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, what are the what um, are the the necessary conditions? You know, these sorts of things. Yeah, but yeah. Um, Anil Seth actually has a book coming out um, with a similar title called "Being You," oh, um, nice. which is one of the yeah. It's a great title, and it, it's one of the best books on the subject. And he deals with um, what we do know about consciousness and human perception 
um, in a way that I haven't heard any other neuroscientist describe quite as well. Um, and he's also giving us kind of the, the most up-to-date neuroscience. So I, I highly recommend that book. It's, it's out in the UK right now, and I think it's coming out in the fall in the US. Oh, wow. Maybe um, I'll get him on my podcast. Yeah. And um, as we're talking, I've actually been using examples from his book all the time. So I'm, I'm sure he'll, he'll come up again as we, as we get into it. Wonderful. Yeah. You do say in your book that um, if, you, if you had to pick two, it would be to listen to, it'd be Anil Seth and Giulio Tononi, right? Did so, I say that in my book? You said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said, you said, well, if I, if I, I had I, to I, pick. I agree, so that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, they're, they're, they're both great. Not Sam Harris. <laughs> Not joking. I'm joking. Um, okay. So what was your, what was your goal in writing the book Conscious? Like what was, what was the kind of motivating force there? You know, it, it kind of changed and evolved as I was writing the book. It began really just for a way. For, I mean, it's almost like what you're talking about this project with your friend. It was a way for me to sort through all of my thoughts about consciousness as they were evolving. So this was something I'd been really fixated on for at least 20 years. I mean, in, in many ways throughout my life. Um, but since I started working with neuroscientists about 20 years ago, it's just something that is constantly in my thoughts and I was constantly shifting my view. And it was at the point where I started to really ask the question, be willing to ask the question, is it possible that consciousness is actually a more fundamental feature of the universe than we previously thought or that, that we, than we've assumed? Um, and that was it was surprising to me that I was becoming open to that because I would have rolled my eyes at that question, you know, up until that point. And I would say that was probably maybe eight to 10 years ago. Um, and so I just started writing because I wanted to sort through my own thought, you know, as, as a philosopher, as a self-taught philosopher, <laughs> um, very interested in the stuff. I just started taking notes. I started writing for myself. Um, it was funny at that point, um, as I, you know, I would talk to Sam about my thoughts and I really kept saying, you know, I, I really feel like it's not as crazy as it sounds. It's, it's possible that this is kind of the next real revelation in science that consciousness, it's almost like all of these other, um, huge discoveries that, um, these ego shattering discoveries of, you know, our planet is not at the center of the solar system and life does not require some injection of some magical substance, right? That, that actually all the stuff in the universe is, is made of the same ingredients and it's just getting reconfigured and reconfigured and we're not that special and the earth is not that special. I mean, it's special in, in the ways that it's interesting mm -hmm. and unique, but each scientific discovery kind of shows us that, we are part, we are part of the universe and not necessarily the center of it or the ego of it. And so I started wondering if consciousness is the same thing where it's actually pervasive, where um, not in a magical sense, but in a very ordinary sense where mm -hmm. it, it is um, a, a feature or a, um, um, I've lost the word. Um, Property. No. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's okay. the word I was looking for. Okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah. So just a property of matter um, mm -hmm. or even something deeper, you know, in the form mm -hmm. of a field. Um, and it's an open question. This is not something that I necessarily believe in, but there are many more reasons to ask this question than I realized. Mm -hmm. So when I first started writing about this and, and thinking about it, Sam would kind of jokingly, but not really as a joke, say, 
don't don't mention this to the neuroscientists you're working with and you know don't say this at a work dinner basically people will think you're crazy and it's it's true and so so then my motivation started shifting and i thought okay what makes a legitimate scientific question impossible to talk about and i'm now convinced this is a legitimate scientific question and so my motivation became to be um, to help explain in very simple terms why this is legitimate science and why we don't know the answer, but it is a good question to ask. And we've been making a lot of assumptions that the more we know about the brain, the more these assumptions are starting to be um, broken down and kind of torn apart. And, and all of these assumptions about things like the self, um, about conscious will, um, they all inform our thinking about consciousness. They inform our intuitions about about consciousness. Excuse me. Um, and so it really feels like it's time for us to rethink some of these things and to go back and say, okay, what what is the latest neuroscience actually telling us about these intuitions that we're trusting in order to make assumptions about consciousness? Um, so I, I really I did want to kind of shift the conversation and eliminate the taboo if, if possible. Um, <clears throat> I would say though, that the, the largest reason was once my writing became an article and then the article became a book, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, once the article became a book and I was writing this book, I was talking, you know, when I have friends who are artists and all, all kinds of different people that I hang out with. And I noticed that it was the first time I was working on a scientific subject that everyone was interested in. And it really surprised me. I'm used to talking about um, a physics experiment or a neuroscientist I'm working with on their new book. And kind of, you know, there are certain people who are interested in that, but a lot of people's eyes glaze over and you realize, okay, we ought to move on to, <laughs> to something else. And consciousness without fail, everyone had really interesting questions. And the questions started driving the book really too. Um, so I just loved that this was a scientific topic that so many people were interested in. Um, and there was not really a single book that I could hand over to a friend who wasn't a scientist that wouldn't be really difficult yeah. to read. And so I thought, I okay, we read this book. <laughs> yeah, you did, a, you did a really great service by writing your book. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, to, to the layperson, if they pick up like David Chalmers' book in Consciousness, their eyes are going to glaze over, quite frankly. or Or even... Um, yeah, it's hard to get through, right? Or even, um, you know, you you touched great, on. By the way. I should say that David Chalmers is is the one person I I recommend because oh, me he too. writes yeah. excessively enough. I mean, if you're if you're into it and you want to go through the the academic <laughs> arguments, it's accessible enough that you know it's it's readable, but it's work. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. I mean, he's a, he's a good friend of mine, and I want to be very clear. I'm not saying. <laughs> saying that like you know everyone's eyes Don't would just glaze over yeah. Yeah, like in a way in a way that they'd be they'd be boring that's not what i mean but it, it's very rigorous it's a rigorous yeah. uh it's idea academic. yeah yeah it's academic mm -hmm. he's he's awesome he actually has a new yeah. book out on um whether or not he, uh, he uh, we're living in a simulation <laughs> I don't no, know i'm you... excited to read it yeah it's not yeah. a yeah. So that, that's interesting. He puts it as a, as a higher percentage than you would think, a probability, higher probability than yeah. one would think. Yes. Um, but it's, it sounds like the idea that um, you're touching on there is what's referred to as panpsychism, right? And yes. um, I've had Philip Goff on my show um, mm. and uh, uh, and we we had a great chat about it. And 
Um, you know, his works are, 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 I'd say, semi-accessible to the general public on this yeah. uh, as Especially well. Especially his, his new book, for His sure. new one? His new one, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, I just, I do think you, your book did a great service as um, a way of even just stimulating um, people to want to learn more about the mm, topic and yeah. kind of get into the debates. And, and, you, and you lay out a bunch of complexities around these topics. And I thought we could just go through some of these things that make it sure. very difficult to study. I, some people might not yeah. even be aware of why it's diff- so difficult. Why is it so hard mm. to just figure out that is there consciousness yeah. everywhere? You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it is. It. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Put the in there and find out. Yeah. Well, some people, you know, and some people are, are trying to do that. You're trying to figure out, yeah. you know, how to do yeah, no, and t- I, phi I, PHI, right? Isn't yeah. Yes. Yes. It's um the integrated information theory, IIT. Mm-hmm. That's um mm-hmm. Julio Tononi and Christoph Koper working on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we may have that someday. Um, but one thing that's really tricky is, you know, kind of going back to Chalmers, this idea of zombies, you know, it's hard. One can have a really rich inner consciousness and, and for no one to have any idea that that's the case from the outside. I felt that yes. was my early child. That was my whole early childhood mm. <laughs> is I was in yeah, open special ed as a kid um, yeah. for an auditory disability I had. So I was actually yeah. zipped up in a cloud people, uh, but, uh, but I had a rich uh, imagination and, um, and, and, and even dare I say, intellect <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was curious no, curious curious no, and there's, and there's people the extreme thought i was stupid version yeah. of that yeah, yeah. no there's yeah. the extreme version of that which you're alluding to which i talk about in my book um two two cases that we know of um one is called locked in syndrome um which mm. which some people are familiar with but not a lot which is um, essentially just a, a brain injury or disease that causes paralysis um, complete paralysis of the body, but where the person's consciousness is is as fully alive and present as you, yours, and mine are in this moment. Um, and in my in my book, I talk about this um, um, memoir that was written by Jean Dominique Bobby, um, who who had this condition. I believe in his case, it was due to a stroke, um, and they assumed that he was in a coma. Um, he was completely paralyzed and. Uh, one of his nurses noticed that he had mobility. He had he had the ability to move one of his eyelids, mm-hmm. um, and that it seemed that he was doing it intentionally. And so it, it's a long story, but they ended up developing a method for him to communicate through choosing letters in the alphabet through a pattern of blinks. Um, and he wrote an entire memoir in this condition with somebody interpreting the blinks and and writing down what he was saying. But what he described, it was obvious that it would be the experience you or I would have right now if we just became completely paralyzed. He could see everything. He could hear everything. He could think he was um, completely himself in, in every other way. And so um, there, there's also this condition of anesthesia awareness, which is my worst nightmare, <laughs> where you're put Me under too. anesthesia for yeah. a procedure and yeah. um, the paralyzing drugs take effect. Um, but the the drugs that are meant to make you unconscious for whatever reason don't work or wear off too quickly. And so the person is there undergoing a medical procedure, a surgery, and they are fully aware they can feel everything. They can hear everything, see everything. They just can't signal that they're conscious. And so at the very least, we know that it's possible for a system um, to have as much consciousness and as much conscious content as any human being does without any behavior indicating it from the outside. Um, And there's this wonderful, I'll send it to you, there's this wonderful image that um, 
I forget where it originated. Someone tweeted it and Anil actually retweeted it, which is why I saw it. But it was from one of those um, science exhibits where they show different parts of the body. I don't know if you ever saw it. I think it was called Inner Worlds or something like this or Body Worlds. Um, they Sounds took people awesome. who donated their, yeah, it was fascinating, kind of disturbing, um, but really interesting. So people had donated their bodies to science and I think it was, a it was, uh, originated in Germany somewhere in, in Europe. Um, and they showed different systems in the human body, one of which was the nervous system by injecting it with some solution that had a color to it. And so it would, you know, harden, and then they would have these displays out on these tables. You could see, you know, a, a, a human who had passed um, their nervous system and everything else stripped away. Um, so someone had taken a picture of this and said, if this were alive, it would be conscious. And it's really interesting um, because it looks like, it looks more like a tree than it does a human being. It's, you know, it has branches and fibers and it twists all around and, but it's basically the, the brain and the central nervous system. Um, and so not that, trees are conscious and, you know, we, we, we don't know, but it's interesting to contemplate the fact that that, that is true. This, this object on the table would be conscious if it were alive. Um, and so, so my book and, and my, my thinking has, has largely been around challenging our intuitions and challenging our assumptions about what we think consciousness is so that we can think more creatively about it. Um, you were talking about why it's so difficult to study um, and one, one thing actually that came a lot in, in your Twitter thread when people were asking is, you know, how, if, if anything else is, is conscious, um, in my body, you know, if my fingernails, if there's consciousness in my fingernails, why doesn't it hurt when I cut them? Or, you yeah. know, how, how is it that I'm, or when I go to sleep or when I'm under anesthesia, when it works, you know, <laughs> um, then how can you say there's consciousness there? I'm clearly not conscious and then I become conscious again. Um, and so this is a really good example of how confused we are by the illusions that the brain delivers to us. And this is partly a function of self, um, l- largely a function of self. And so there, there are a few different ways I can answer this. And I, I think it also gets at this question of why it's so difficult to study. But um, so simple example, you can imagine, um, actually, I'll, I was thinking of, of a parasite, but I have a better example. It's a, l- a little bit like a parasite, but um, when I was pregnant, right, I had a, another human being in my body. Um, most neuroscientists would agree that at least at the, you know, the day before she was born, she was basically the same outside the body as inside the body. She had consciousness. She could hear my voice. There are all kinds of things that are happening in the brain at that point. So you could say, well, if, if the baby's conscious, why, why aren't I hearing the sound she's hearing? Why, you know, why isn't that a part of my consciousness? And, and then the answer becomes very simple. Of course, there can be another center of consciousness within my body that I am not aware of. Right. So, um, and uh, you know, parasites are another example. If I had a tapeworm and maybe tapeworms aren't conscious, but if they are, which isn't hard to imagine, there clearly can be systems within the body where they don't show up in this stream that, you know, that I refer to as me, which is essentially, um, memory and it's, it's largely memory. Um, but it's also a sense, um, it almost gets too complicated to get into. This is what Anil's book is about, but all all the different perceptions that give me the sense that there's a, that there's a me, that there's kind of this solid 
me in here that is somehow separate from brain processing, that it's not just that I'm experiencing brain processing, but that there's this kind of solid me. But the, the truth is all anyone has access to um, is for one thing that can communicate, right? So um, my the fact that the speaking part of my brain is also carrying memory, these like trails of memory of all, you know, short-term and long-term memory um, that is me. If let's say two seconds ago, um, or let's say you deliver some um, type of, of amnesiac drug where I now can't remember the last five minutes, um, we wouldn't be tempted to say I wasn't con- there was no consciousness present in those five minutes, even though now I can say, no, it's the same, the same experience for me as if I had just woken up from a surgery. Like I wasn't conscious and now I am. So, so all we have is self-report and we have self-report from the experience of the stream that is containing all the, the brain processing that contains all the memories. Um, but what we don't know is whether there's all kinds of other conscious processes happening within my body that are just not part of this stream that can report. Um, and so another great example, sorry, I'm rambling on for a long time. I was going to bring up split brain research, but, um, you look like you have a question that you want to ask. I was going to bring up like, I was bring up multiple personalities disorder. Where does that fit yeah. into all this? I mean, yeah. they ha- they have multiple streams of consciousness that yeah. they're like, w- they alternate between which don't one they, seem, identif- they identify with. Aware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and split brain research again is like the most yeah. extreme version of that where they yeah. actually physically, um, I don't know how much your audience will, will be aware of. I don't, I don't want to repeat things that you've spoken a lot about on, on your podcast already, but um. Let me no, know if you want good. me to go into this more detail. No, but, this is good stuff. Um, Please go into yeah. it. Yeah. So, so um, there's a procedure um, where they actually cut the corpus callosum, the connection between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. Um, they have better interventions now. Um, so it's almost not done anymore, but it was done for um, a long period of time. Very effective at helping with um, epileptic seizures that were destroying people's lives and, and putting their lives at risk. So, um, the biggest risk um, in, in a seizure is when it spreads to the entire brain. And so cutting that connection makes it impossible for the left and right hemispheres to, to communicate and for any of the electrical firing to pass across. And so the seizure would be contained to one to one side um, and therefore really increase the quality of life of the patient. Surprisingly, with almost no side effects, you really could barely tell. The person really seemed and and reported that they they felt the same. What they noticed when they started studying these patients, and there and there's a ton of um, um, uh, written uh, sorry research that's that's been written about. And um, Michael Gazaniga is is one neuroscientist who was very involved in this research, and he's written a lot about it. I recommend his books on this. Um, and Roger Sperry as well. Um, so so they they conducted many experiments. Um, on the split brain patients. And what they discovered was that essentially they had, it had almost become, or in reality had become two people. Um, it was almost like, um, conjoined twins where they're kind of sharing a body, but one hemisphere did not have access to what the other hemisphere was experiencing. And in fact, the two hemispheres end up having different preferences, different opinions. Um, there's some really interesting cases. I think it was um, Ian McGilchrist who writes about 
the patient who um, one, one hemisphere was an, was an atheist and the other was uh, <laughs> a, an evangelical Christian. And you know that's very extreme. Most were not that extreme, but they were able to, you, in these situations, they can test each hemisphere um, separately asking the same question and you get mm-hmm. different answers. And then there are bizarre things that um, they witnessed, um, something called hemispheric rivalry, where one hemisphere would be interested in wearing a blue sweater and be putting the blue sweater on. And it, apparently the, the other hemisphere did not want to wear that sweater. And, and you could see the person actually fighting with themselves because the, the, the right hemisphere controls the left part of the body, the left hemisphere controls the right. And so mm-hmm. you can actually see a, a physical fight in some rare cases take place. It's like Dr. Um, Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> the, so clearly we don't, we can't rule out that there's other conscious content and other parts of my body, other parts of my brain, other, other systems um, that entail conscious experience um, within my body, even though it's not entering the stream that that is me that has the memories and preferences that that happen to go along with this particular um, brain processing. Absolutely. And and the really interesting thing is when these kind of brain networks that are usually coupled um, start to become decoupled through meditation practices. I'm yes. really, yes. what I say like that practices, practices, practices. Uh, yeah. <laughs> could, it, could it be, could it be practices? Anyway, we're talking uh, science. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, why did I say it like that? But anyway, um, you know, but I'm really interested in the way they can be decoupled through practices uh, like meditation yeah. th- or other um, uh, kind of more spiritual practices, yeah. I, I guess one could call them or self-transcendent experiences, like including even drugs, um, dare yeah. I say, but yeah. Uh, no, that's an early experience. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So for instance, it's what's really interesting is when we can uh we can be fully conscious and piercingly conscious of the contents of our consciousness, um, but not have our brain areas like in the default mode network active that are more tied to a self-related processing. And that's, that's a right. that's a cool that's kind of a cool state sometimes to play with. I don't know if I always one hundred percent want to be in that yeah. state, you know. Yeah. But 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 it but but through meditation practice, you kind of get to the state of of uh, of of witness consciousness, right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And those are definitely the things that um those those are where the intuitions I have for um breaking apart some of the assumptions that we tend to come in with. Um, my, and, and it is, it's kind of the typical experience of when you take something apart and you take a toaster apart and you put it back together and you understand how the toaster works now, right? It's, mm. um, when you can take a, when you can have an experience without feeling at all like a self, um, when you can have experience of, um, even, even different types of agnosia. So, so Agnosia, there, there's a variety of uh, different types of agnosia. That's when brain processing goes awry. These are diseases, essentially. Um, you can be in a state where um, sounds and sights are no longer synced. Um, this is something our brain does for us. Sound and light travel at different speeds. These um, information from the outside world come in through our senses. We, we perceive them at different times. They take different, you know, it takes a longer time for a sense from my fingertips to reach my brain and get processed than it does, um, for say the sound. If I'm, if I hit the table, um, the signal from the touch actually takes longer than the signal 
of the sound, but our brain through what are called binding processes mm. and weave that together so that in my experience, they seem to happen at the same time. Um, so agnosia is when these processes aren't working properly, um, but you can have, so, 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 so some people, um, have this experience where something is, goes wrong with their brain processing and those sights and sounds are not synced. And it's obviously a very disorienting experience and, mm. um, a, a difficult way to live, but this can happen. You can have finger agnosia. You cannot be able to tell mm. the difference between your fingers. Um, all kinds of things can go awry with the brain. Um, but under psychedelic, um, under the influence of, of some psychedelic substances, um, these types of agnosia can can come on for short periods of time. Um, and so, through meditation and some experimenting with with psychedelic substances, it's it's been my way of taking the toaster apart and putting it back together. When you drop the sense of self, when mm. color and sound and um, physical sensation all start to bleed together. Um, and you have these experiences while you're conscious of a very different type of experience than the one we tend to have. You realize that your brain is just doing something different, right? When it's, mm -hmm. when it's, when you're experiencing a sense of self, the brain is, is, is creating that. The sense of self is a perception in the same way that the color red is a perception. When I, when I see the color red, I have no information about the light waves or, you know, about the molecules and what's happening at a fundamental level. I just have this felt experience of red. And so the felt experience of self in the same way is not giving us good information about the underlying reality. Um, and so that's what I'm incredibly interested in now. And that's what my, my audio series is about. And I, I'm surprised, although it makes sense, but I'm mostly talking to physicists actually for, for this project on consciousness, because I'm interested in this question about whether it's possible that consciousness is more fundamental than we think. And, and this actually becomes a question um, for physics very quickly. It has to be informed by neuroscience, of course, but if it is fundamental, then it is, it is a question for physicists. Do you talk to Sean Carroll? Yes. Spoken to Sean Carroll. He, um, that he was, was great. on my podcast, and we we yeah. really we really nerded out about this topic and yeah. free will. We disagreed about yeah. free will. As I I tend to disagree with a lot of people about free will for yeah. some reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah. yeah no, cool. actually, one of the things that I that he and I spoke about, and that is, you know, um, parallel, not not exactly related to to these things that we're talking about, but. Um, often people's questions about free will and about this, this sense of, um, you know, are, are we making choices and, and how is it that we're not making choices if we're not? And one conclusion I always come to, or one, it's more like, um, just a, a, an interesting thought I think is what does it even mean to say that something else could have happened? You know, if we jump forward 20 years, um, this conversation will have gone however it went and the rest of our, you will have moved into your new place and our lives would have happened. And in what sense can we say, well, it could have happened another way. And I, and I would argue that we can't, that things are going to happen the way they're going to happen. And there is no two things happening. What's interesting about many worlds <laughs> is mm. all, everything happens basically. And I think it's an interesting conundrum for those of us who are convinced that, um, that we do not have free will. Although I never, I never put it that way. I, 
I think there's a way to talk about having free will um, that our brains as a system in some sense have. I mean, ultimately, I don't think it's free, but it's different to talk about the free will of the system of our brain versus conscious will. And I'm always very careful to separate those because what I think is clearly an illusion is conscious will. And the truth is that's the majority of what people care about. And that is the illusion that gets in the way of how, of thinking about consciousness clearly. So our, our brain as a system can still have the type of free will that, that we're interested in. Um, but consciousness, it's a totally open question whether consciousness has anything to do with it at all. And most of the neuroscience is pointing in the direction of um, consciousness kind of being the last to know that everything, including this, the feeling of will, the feeling, feeling of having made a decision is again, another perception of the brain um, and consciousness that all of the brain processing happens prior to it becoming a conscious experience in the same way that binding does. So, so there's a way, there, there's a sense in which all of the decision-making is happening behind the scenes in the same way that the binding of sights and sounds is happening behind the scenes. And then what your experience is, um, is I'm making a decision. I want, I have the feeling of will, I want to do this and now I'm going to do it. And that perception is, is kind of the last thing to happen. Well, we can double click on that. Um, there was a really uh, who, a good quote. Who 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 came up with the quote? Where there's not it's not not so good to think of consciousness like a bird, you know, kind of oh, flying above us, Ian but Mc more of the root. Yeah, uh, Ian McGilchrist, yes. but the yeah. root and um, and I th I think that uh, there that you're quite right that uh, cognitive science has really shown as well as social psychologists. I should give them some credit too. They've shown yeah. just how much our behaviors and actions in the world are. Um, are influenced by non-conscious processes. Uh, my whole mm. dissertation was on implicit learning, which is a, mm. a, a topic in the field of cognitive science where we can learn the probabilistic rule structure of the universe, mm. of things, of people, so social skills, but also beauty, nature, you know, aesthetics, mm. and I linked it to creativity in my dissertation. But mm. I found that people um, differed wildly in their ability to implicitly soak up knowledge of things. And that wasn't correlated with IQ, by the way. So some mm -hmm. people do have this kind of intuitive non-conscious intelligence more than others. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's quite right. Um, but I think that um, it might be valuable to distinguish between mm. uh, between the the function of consciousness um, in in terms of um, what you're kind of bringing up, which is well, could we have done otherwise if we rewinded mm. the tape and had all the same conditions? Versus maybe the function of consciousness, why it evolved, is to help us with error correction in the future um, to kind of make some changes to things that, so we can not be so short-sighted. Um, that does that does seem to be something unique about humans. I don't want to go too crazy with the uniqueness of humans because I really do agree yeah. uh, with evolutionary yeah. psychologists that once you start looking in, into it more, you're like, well, actually, yeah. apes would have done the same making thing. a lot of decisions other, too. Other yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Turn you, can, you can go yeah. pretty far down. It's interesting. Yeah. The, the mechanism of choice goes really far down, mm -hmm. um, really to the level of plants. And a lot of the genes we share with plants, um, I mean, obviously in humans, it's much more complex. It always becomes more complex. But um, the, the origin of the actual decision making, or what we're, we're calling decision making, um, go, goes very far back. Um, I was going to say something else when you were talking. Oh, yes. So the evolution argument, um, 
Yes, that absolutely makes sense. If consciousness is serving the function we have always assumed and it, mm. it may, but it may not. And that, that is really what my, my book is all about and what, mm. um, I spend most of my time thinking about. And my, I begin my book with these two questions for that reason, um, just to get, to chip away at the things we most strongly assume about consciousness. And so the, the two questions are, are related, but, but they're different and important to ask separately. Um, the first one is, is there any behavior? Is there anything on the outside that we can point to that we can say conclusively is evidence that there's consciousness present in the system? Um, and we already talked a little bit about locked-in syndrome and how, the, you know, that's the flip side of it. But at least we know it's possible to not see anything on the outside of, of a conscious system. Um, but is it possible that we can say, um, if you see someone crying after they break their arm, you know, they are, they are conscious or, you know, whatever the formula might be, is there something we can always say, if we see that, we know there's consciousness. And our reflexive answer to that is yes. Um, and the example I gave is, is like all the examples we would give where we think if you see that behavior, there's consciousness present. I think that's much more of an assumption than we realize and not an evidence-based assumption. Um, the second question is the one that pertains to evolution, which is, is consciousness serving a function? Is it actually doing something? Is it having an effect? And the answer is clearly, we don't know. We do not know the answer to this. We have, the sciences have assumed all this time, as have I until 10 years ago. <laughs> um, and it still may be the case. It's, I, 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 you know, it's, it's an open question. Um, but we don't know if consciousness is serving the function it is serving. And the truth is anything we want to point to in human beings, um, we can imagine. And the truth is very soon there will be an AI version of this to point to where you can imagine an unconscious AI system doing just as good a job as that thing you think we need consciousness for and imagine that it doesn't have consciousness. Um, and so we don't know. And if consciousness is, is truly fundamental, if there, if there just is felt experience, if it is a property of matter, um, and wherever there is matter, there is some content appearing in consciousness, um, then, you know, when we feel pain, that is simply what it is like to be that system. It simply has a, qual a felt quality to it. Um, it's not necessarily helping the system out. Um, in terms of getting it to avoid pain, you can program something to avoid certain things that we categorize, you know, would, would cause pain. Um, all we're saying is that's what that brain processing feels like. Yeah. Um, we don't well, know that it's helping or that we needed it to evolve. Well, this is an interesting, uh, an important distinction when, when you talk about, uh, panpsychism, um, is that consciousness is not necessarily, um, equated with complexity. Um, right. Um, and I think that's a common misconception, um, which yeah. opens us up to understanding how plants could have a consciousness, even though it's not, you're not making the argument. It's the same consciousness as a human consciousness. Right. Absolutely not. Because it's not, I mean, I, I, I often make different jokes. Like you, we wouldn't expect, expect a, a vine to start doing ballet, right? <laughs> like It's not a human. It's not going to act like a human. It's not going to think like it is just whatever consciousness is in that point in space and time. <clears throat> to the extent that that matter is different, it will feel different. Um, and I think this sense of being a self, if 
consciousness is pervasive in that way. Um, this sense of being a self that our brain gives us, there are not many things in nature that have that, that have that construction. It would be a very rare form of experience. The rest of it would be much more amorphous and not the, the, uh, the, the analogy I've been giving lately is like bubbles in a pot of boiling water where the water is consciousness where consciousness is some sort of field or a property of matter. And the bubbles are, are these perturbations in the field where it just, things arise, you know, there's a feeling of pressure that arises in the universe. There's a feeling of, there's a sound of middle C. There's a, what, you know, whatever the, the qualia is, they, it just keeps kind of popping up. Um, and we happen to have these complex brain systems that give us this sense that we're this solid self that's doing the experiencing, that's moving through time. Um, when in fact that doesn't really describe the, the fundamental reality well at all yeah like you like you said there's it's still a great mystery and there are various there's there's well there's no shortage of different opinions on this in in my field yeah. right i yeah. mean roy roy baumeister wrote a a review paper uh, um, i don't know if you've read it um, on consciousness no. does consciousness uh, um, he argues that the role of consciousness is uh, in it's in making a causal impact on our behavior is actually quite pervasive and extensive um and he he lays out the different domains in which that's the case i'll send you the paper um okay. uh, he talks about implementation intentions and um and various other things in the field that shows there is quite a a role of consciousness but yeah and then that starts begging the question of i don't know is begging the question the right phrase but it starts uh no yeah <laughs> no no i don't think I, I i i always get corrected i always get corrected on that. Yeah, it start, what, it uh it i'm what always it, tempted no, please correct me. It asks the it it what the question? What does it do? Yeah, it raises. It just raises. It the raises. Question. It raises. So yeah, so that raises. <laughs> no, okay. I always get corrected on that. So, but yeah, yeah. It just it raises the question. Um, you know what uh, extent? Uh, you know what? How far back do you go in terms of the causal uh, things that caused those co those so called conscious processes that then caused? Yeah, it's it's well, kind also, of tur I mean, turtles there, all the way down. So many, yes, yeah. and there's so many assumptions embedded in all of the ways that we even speak about these mm. things that um, he's saying consciousness, but all he knows is the conscious systems in the brain that we know are conscious. Like he's really talking about the systems. Mm. So yes, those systems are required for that type of learning. And we know those systems have consciousness associated with them. But if everything has consciousness associated with them, then it's something else about those systems that is unique. And there are mm. many things that are unique about those systems. Yeah, that's um, a really good and, point. And, and yeah. it's interesting. I mean, so so one of the things that's that's obviously, you know, glaringly obvious that makes consciousness so difficult is we can't access it from the outside, right? It is, it is this intrinsic quality. And so unless we can have a report, I mean, with these split brain patients, if scientists hadn't figured out a way to communicate with the right hemisphere, because the, the in most people, the speaking um, hemisphere is the left hemisphere, that where, where the, the language center of the brain is in the left hemisphere. And so that's who you're hearing from, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, if they hadn't figured out a way to ask questions of the right hemisphere, um, by showing written questions in the left visual field or asking them to, to grab things um, with their left hand, which is controlled by the right hemisphere, that hemisphere cannot communicate. We don't, it's in their conscious and we can't talk to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
we really, so we've always assumed, which of course makes perfect sense. We've assumed that unless it's telling us and, and acting in a way we know we're conscious, I know I'm conscious. If you act like me, I can assume you're conscious too. You're, you're basically doing the same types of things I'm doing. When you hurt, when you fall down and hurt yourself, you act the way I um, act when I hurt myself, you must be feeling the same thing. Um, and the rest of nature is so foreign to us in terms of it being different, um, that it just seems impossible. And because everything we experience by definition is through consciousness, um, we assume that all the things we do and, and, um, are entail consciousness in a way that other things don't because we have, we have no evidence for it. Um, and because they're so different and we think our experience, it, it has to do with consciousness. Um, so yeah, well, it's, it's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to so study. Difficult. And, and I have, I haven't read this paper and I, I will, the one that you're, you're referencing, you. but I've heard a thoughts. lot of arguments yeah. like that. And the yeah. problem is they're not distinguishing between consciousness itself and conscious processes in the brain. And wow. we only know those are conscious processes in the brain because we have reports from humans <laughs> that are conscious. <laughs> or we, by analogy, we, we assume that the mouse, you know, when their brain is in a similar state, they're feeling conscious. When, you know, when the mouse looks like it's in pain, it's in pain. You know, we can make these analogies to creatures that are similar enough to us. But um, yeah. Humans are unreliable narrators of themselves <laughs> and, that, and that too yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna tweet that i'm gonna that's a tweet right there that's a tweet right there okay. i'm writing that down uh, there it is okay. of themselves okay but no look th this 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 stuff is it, it is obviously um uh still mysterious in so many ways and then you know you have jeffrey miller over there uh, arguing that consciousness evolved for the function of attracting mates that it allowed us to woo you know, particularly men <laughs> wooing yeah. women through yeah. the course of sexual selection throughout the, the course yeah. of humanity. And, and that, that's, he's argued that's the function of consciousness. There's, like I said, there's no shortage of, of different theories. Sure. And, and, and no if, one's, and if yeah. consciousness does arise at the level of the brain, if that is, yeah. if that is actually in fact true, which it, it might be, then that evolution argument makes perfect sense. Hmm. Um, but we don't, we don't know that it's true and we're not even close to being able to say that it isn't there at this point, there are many reasons to ask the question and to, and to, um, rather than assume consciousness arises because of brain processing, there are many reasons to go down the path of assuming it's fundamental. And then when you go down that path, that evolution argument completely falls apart. And you're just talking about behavior and sensing in the same way that that an ai that were designed to do exactly that thing to attract mates to you know you it's you can it's not obvious when you look at the details that an ex felt experience of the processing is necessary for the processing to take place yeah no it's a really excellent point um just to kind of circle back on the free will thing for a second um, I don't yeah. know if you uh, watched my podcast episode with Sam Harris about this. Did you watch Did it? Was, I, I mean, <laughs> no. it was it was like four hours, three was, hours. I heard, and I mean, this is this is a debate. He and I. This is a debate I started getting into when I was twelve. Actually, the first time I had a debate about free will, I was twelve. With my mom. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it's never ending. It's never ending, right? The never ending. Never debate. ending, and yeah, I don't. 
Anyway, you, go ahead. I, I did not see it, but I can imagine how it went. <laughs> well, regardless of, you don't need to, to watch it. I, you know his views on the topic. Well, his views are my views. We basically share so, a brain on this. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask, like, is there anything that you disagree with, Sam, about in the realm of consciousness and free will where you, you like or even vehemently disagree with him about or are you, you both really much on the same page about this? Yeah. 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 There's no I mean, I, the, the way I described that, that we share a brain is, is basically across the board. And I think given who each of us are, it wouldn't work <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> um, OK, no, I mean. I, I was his his first editor and was able to do Aww. that because we yeah I mean we, we think very similarly and I think that that's why we connected in the first place. Yeah. I I think that's adorable. <laughs> if I can <laughs> use that if I can use that word. <laughs> yeah. Like I think I love uh, you know that's that's wonderful. Um, okay, so uh, so then therefore I can extrapolate that when it comes to the 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 question of free will, you're you're not a you're not a compatibilist. You're not a compatibilist. You don't um, think uh, that sort of Daniel Dennett's arguments, for instance, are particularly compelling. Uh, that you would want to call any of that uh, in any meaningful sense uh, a, a free will that's worth wanting. No, and I, I mean, I, okay. yeah, I, I've had many, I've had hours of of mm. debate with dan dennett and i and i love him and i think he's he's wonderful and i he's consider great. him to be yeah. a friend but we yeah we do nothing but debate <laughs> when we <laughs> with topics like this I love um that. <laughs> i think i mean there are a few things i could say about it if if you want um i think it, having sure. go, having the argument again is probably not worth no not worth of course your, your no podcast just, time yeah i just um, want to hear some of your thoughts about it you know yeah. i think you know it Ultimately, I think it's important to see the truth and be able to grapple with the truth. And, you know, as, as far as I can tell, until someone can can change my mind, it seems very clear to me that free will as a concept doesn't even it, it's even hard to describe what one means. I, I don't I don't think it's a, a, something that is um, operating in the universe. Um, but I can also say that that's often not a useful fact to keep in mind, especially in human psychology, when raising children, um, when, you know, talking about behavior and positive psychology and meditation and all of that. Um, and I sometimes will, it's not a perfect, perfect analogy, but I sometimes make the analogy to, you know, understanding that the earth is a sphere. You know, if you're, if you're building a house and even just in your everyday life, you do not need to keep reminding yourself that the earth is a sphere to get on with your day. You can basically act like the world is flat and everything's going to be fine. You know, mm. And in many cases, your life will go better. Your daily life is going to go better if you're. If you're How better? How better? Assuming that the world around you is flat. Oh, yeah. Okay, um, fair enough. Yeah. And so. I, I, well, I think it's important to not lie to ourselves and not to not be afraid of the truth always. I mean, I feel like this is an important value that people like Dan Dennett often are worried that people, you know, the, I, I won't quote him as saying this, but, but other philosophers um, like him will say, well, yes, ultimately that's true, but it's too destabilizing. It's too scary to people. It, you know, the, everything is, is going to fall apart if we, if we tell people that. <laughs> The free will doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and I actually think one that's not sustainable. If 
science is is marching toward a truth, it's it's you can't avoid the truth. And so we kind of owe it to ourselves. It, it can be a destabilizing fact to people. Um, and I think we owe it to ourselves to find a way for it to not be destabilizing. But I also think there is really um, it's it's not necessarily easy for everyone to find, but there is an available framing of this, which is to me kind of the epitome of spirituality or of a you know, spiritual experience, even though I, I always hesitate to use that word, that there's actually a lot of good that can come out of this realization that um, it can be freeing. It can be very helpful to people with um, um mental disorders, illness, like OCD. Um, I actually interviewed a couple of people for this, this um, documentary series I'm, I'm working on talking about how understanding that brain processes were responsible for, for their behavior was so helpful in managing it and also giving themselves a break at feeling like myself is, why do I do this? Why do I keep acting this way? Don't, why don't I have, you know, why can't I will this thing away when you can in fact realize the universe is kind of unfolding and we have this magical experience of um, witnessing it, of having an experience of it unfolding in the way that it is. And that's all we know at this point. Um, there's a lot more to discover, um, but there's something beautiful in the mystery. There's something beautiful in not knowing. And there's something freeing in realizing that you don't have as much control as as you think you do. And you're not even really a separate solid entity that is mm. apart from the universe. You mm. are the universe. We're all part of this thing that's unfolding and we're witnessing it happening from one point of view. <laughs> I think that to a large degree that it can be very freeing. I would all, since I am a compatibilist, um, don't hate me, but since I am a compatibilist, I do uh, <laughs> think I could make a rigorous case for why there's something freeing as well to know that there are certain things that you can do as well. That, yeah. um, so well, I, 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 I could see it both ways. Yeah. And that's yeah. where I like, and that's another reason why I like to distinguish conscious will mm, from free from will. Free and will. So the free I see. will you're yeah. talking about is kind of is brain processing. Our brains are not closed, closed systems. So right. you and I, this entire time are, have been, we're far apart, but our ideas are affecting each other's brain right. patterns, you know, right. um, yeah. All of that is all of that is absolutely true. And when again, this is a place where thinking about conscious will being an illusion is not very useful um, and can and can just be confusing when you're talking about the effects of meditation on the brain, the effects of connecting with people, the effects of thoughts, certain types of thoughts, all of those things are are part of the system of the brain that is interacting with the world around it. And there are, you know, better and worse ways to, to feel in the world and healthier and, and less healthy ways to, for your brain to be interacting with itself and with the outside world. Yeah, I, I hear you. If you and Sam are judges in a courtroom someday, I would love to present my case for why I think <laughs> that some of the things that people um, mean by free will and truly mean yeah. by it and what they really yeah. want for as yeah. their own autonomous um, organisms that are cybernetic, cybernetic systems that have goals yeah. um, that they do have those things legitimately, yes. legitimately have yeah. those things. Someday I want to put all my uh, ducks in a row. Is that the right metaphor? I am terrible at metaphors. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably, 
probably and don't totally yeah. disagree with you. I mean, I think mm. um, the cool. brain the brain has that. Ultimately, what the fundamental reality is, um, we don't know, and and mm. ultimately. It's, it's hard to see, you know, where, where, where the actual freedom is, because there's a lot of I in those statements, which is fine when you're talking human psychology, but underneath it all. Yeah. Yeah. That I isn't really there. <laughs> so I really see it as two levels of conversation and yeah, the, the yeah. level of conversation you want to have and that you think is important. I totally agree with. Mm. And it's a bit of a mess to try to have both conversations at once, I think. But we should try to do it because it's okay. fun because it's, okay. it's just fun. I mean, not, not yeah. right now, but I'm saying, right. you know, let's yeah, keep yeah. up the conversation. <laughs> um, it, we're not going to settle it. <laughs> we're not going to settle it right now. But um, I really appreciate your perspective. I really do. Um, just the remaining uh, couple minutes we have today. Can we talk about I Wonder, which is your children's oh, sure. book? I loved sure. it. Um, I, um, I got, I got chills as I was reading it. I I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just like, we're on a similar, uh, frequency there, you know, about the importance of, uh, of, uh, awe and wonder in the world. Um, I mean, I, um, I wrote a book, uh, called trans, I'm not trying to plug my book, but I wrote, I wrote a book called transcend where it's Uh, all about, Oh, I mailed you a copy. Um, but I'm really profoundly interested in the latest science of all, for instance, AWE. And I created an yes. all experience questionnaire, uh, published this scientific paper on this with my colleague, David Yaden. Um, to see if oh, I'd capture. like to see that, actually. I'll yeah. send that to you. So yeah, no, you, I mean, I feel yeah. like that's my that's my best antidepressant is off. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Me too. Um, yeah. And actually, I so I the I. I it's funny. I feel like I've known you for a while, but I, I, yeah, I, I feel that way I've too. never met you. Yeah, and like um, you. I've only listened to a couple of your interviews. One of which um, was one where you, where you talked about your childhood. It was with, um, Oh my goodness. I'm spacing on Andrew his name. Yang. Was it Andrew, Andrew Yang? Yang? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't believe I forgot mm-hmm. his name and I know him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Did you like that conversation? Did you I like loved that, that conversation. Mm-hmm. It was so interesting for me to hear about your childhood. Um, and I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners know, know your experience. And although my childhood was very different, there are a lot of similarities. Really? And so I can see how you would connect with, I wonder, because it really yeah. was a book that I wrote that I wanted to read with my daughter, but because I wished someone had read a book like that to me when I was young. And I wish someone had spoken that way to me when I was young. Me too. Um, me yeah. too. Um, I was. I had all these questions as a kid. Uh, you know what? What's that? What's that? And they're like, they saw me only through the lens of uh, of disability. You know, mm-hmm. so they're like, yeah. you know, you're not allowed to ask questions. You're in special ed. It's like, wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that was a rule. But um, no, yeah, so yeah. so can you tell me about how your conversations with your daughter inspired you over the years to want to write such a book? Yeah. Um, so I, I say this a bit in, in the author's note that I noticed, so it was something I had already noticed in my work with scientists. So I had been working at that point, I'd been working for at least 10 years, about 10 years, um, working with scientists who are trying to make their work more accessible to the general public. So mostly editing um, popular books for, for the general public on the brain, um, on physics and um, coaching people for for um, accessible talks like TED Talks, things like that. But my passion was really to get um, as much science accessible to, to the rest of the world as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that work, I could see how often people got uncomfortable 
not knowing something about a subject and how quickly people would say, oh, I was terrible at math in school. Like basically they just shut the door immediately because they're so uncomfortable yeah. with that feeling they had as a kid and, and that they have now. And it's, it's really pervasive in our culture that um, this reaction to the feeling of not knowing being so negative, we're either ashamed or we're afraid. I mean, those are the two main feelings that come up. Um, and it's interesting when I was um, interviewing some developmental specialists when I was writing the book, a couple of them, I, I convinced them otherwise, but a couple of them, their first reaction to me was, oh, no, you should never say I don't know to a child. It's too scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that's so interesting. It's so deep in the culture that no one has even questioned this. Um, and I say it to my daughter all the time and she's not scared. <laughs> we have these big conversations. And and I realized we we're really just teaching our culture and teaching our children that it's shameful or scary to not know the answer. Um, and then I, I saw the other side of it with, with my daughter when um, they get to an age where it's just inevitable everywhere you go, people ask the way they converse with toddlers is they'll say like, Oh, what color is this? And, um, what's your doggy's name and how many feet do you have? Or, you know, they they ask them simple questions that they can answer and then say, yay, you knew the answer. Um, and I noticed that when she got asked a question, she didn't know she started kind of avoid, there was an avoidance happening really early. Um, and so it was really a book that I almost was writing more for the parents than for the kids. Um, I wanted to give parents a um, language for having these types of conversations with their kids and for fostering um, and celebrating this feeling of not knowing, of just completely reframing it, um, especially for parents who know this already intuitively, like parent, you know, so, someone like you, I say this and you totally, you know, you get it immediately but a lot of parents then don't know what to do with that or don't are still are afraid to to talk to their kids thanks for listening to this episode of the psychology podcast if you'd like to react in some way to something you heard i encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com that's thepsychologypodcast.com also if you'd prefer a completely ad free experience you can join us at patreon.com slash psych podcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 
Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters.